Good morning, everyone, <clears throat> and to all of our mothers, happy Mother's Day. Wonderful day. I hope you're able to spend some time with your families or at least get a call from some of your kids. Uh, this is just <clears throat> a wonderful day to honor mothers. Uh, and we're going to be doing that in our worship this morning um, by, by handing out roses to all of our mothers who are present today. And we're just we're looking forward to that time together. Go ahead and open up your Bibles, though, to the book of Micah. <clears throat> we are continuing on in our series on the minor prophets. Now, some of you are probably scrambling at the front of your Bibles, trying to figure out, like, where is the book of Micah? And I get it. We don't use the minor prophets that much or probably as much as we should. I remember when I was in high school, I heard a song on the Old Testament and I'm like, okay, I can learn the books this way. And I usually did pretty good until I got to the Minor Prophets. So when it got to that part of the song, it would go, let us sing the Minor Prophets, Minor Prophets, Minor Prophets. Let us sing the Minor Prophets. There are 12 of them all. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, and Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. And that's how I learned it. And ever since then, whenever you say a book of the Bible, especially in the Minor Prophets, I throw that little song in there and it helps me to remember. Well, while you're turning there, let me tell you a little bit about Micah. The name Micah means who is like Yahweh. Plant that in the back part of your mind. He comes from a very small town in Judea called Morsheth. He, uh, at this particular time, Israel was divided into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Actually, it had been for a very long time. And Peyton, he dealt with Amos and Hosea over the last couple of weeks. They prophesied in the northern kingdom. Micah, along with Isaiah, prophesied in the southern kingdom during the same time as the other two. And at this particular time, both were corrupt. Both were, were not right. In fact, the book opens up with God coming down to visit Israel, and it is not going to be a pleasant visit. He has come to pick a fight with Israel's leaders for 500 years of rebellion and injustice. And judgment was going to come by way of an oppressive nation. Back up just a moment, and maybe some of the things that um, actually that Peyton had talked about. There was a period of wealth and prosperity in Israel. And during this time, it developed this wealthy businessman, if you will, merchant class. Unfortunately, they began to take advantage of the poor. The rich got richer at the expense of the poor. And that's why God began to send in his prophets in order to deal with these things that they were doing. And you can read about it in chapter 2 and in verse 2 and some of the things that they were doing, actually the whole, the whole story. But there's a documentary on CNBC. It's called American Greed. Some of you may have heard of it before. And it deals with things such as Ponzi schemes and embezzlement and white-collar crimes. It deals with some um, less featured or lower profile 
financial crimes, things such as investment frauds and bank robbery and identity theft, medical and insurance frauds, just to name a few. And the sad part is this documentary has been going on since 2007, and it seems to be going very strong because there's a lot of greed in our world, right here in our nation. But God's people were not supposed to be like this. When God had allotted Israel their land, uh, once they conquered the promised land, God set up laws in order to protect the families in those lands as well as the poor people in the land as well. You can read about it in Deuteronomy chapter 15. But in Micah's day, the wealthy, they started to grow callous towards those who they considered weak. Again, chapter 2 really puts this out there. Judges and lawmakers, they, were, they became involved in conspiracy and bribery and bending justice for the favor of the wicked. In fact, justice is described as something that is straight. When there is an injustice, you will hear it sometimes being described as something that is bent. And so in order to have justice, you have to take what is crooked and make it straight once again. And that was the purpose of the prophets. That's the purpose of what was happening. If you have your Bibles in the book of Micah, look at Micah chapter 3. We're going to begin in verse 9. And just listen. This is just some portion of this. It says, Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, who detest justice and make crooked, here it is, all that is straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity, its heads give judgment for a bribe, its priests teach for a price, its prophets practice divination for money. So even the religious leaders at the time, they were spokesmen for these wealthy folks who were going off and doing the things that they were doing. And they were doing it because, well, it made them wealthy. Christians today, we don't take allotted land that has been given to other people by God himself. But there's other ways that we exhibit greed. Greed is any decision that we make in order to enrich our own selves at the expense of someone else. Micah wants us to ponder those things. Are there things in your life that that's exactly what you've done? Few of us admit that we have a problem with greed. Most of the time we think, well, it's got to be those who are wealthy, right? Because the wealthy, they're the ones who, you know, they have more than us. They're the ones with the problem. Micah accused the people of idolatry. And we may sit here and say, well, I don't have an idol. I don't go out and worship idols, I don't, and this kind of thing. And yet in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 2, the Apostle Paul says, if you are a greedy person, you are an idolater. If you go out and steal and cheat and lie in order to get ahead or to keep yourself from some kind of financial loss, he says, you are a greedy idolater. It's just that simple. Corruption was the rule of the day. The innocent uh, were attacked. They took children and they sold them into slavery. Women were being, uh, their houses were being taken away from them. Again, chapter 2, 1 through 11. And Micah's poem is not lost on our culture either, where there is a major issue with child abuse in our country. One in three 
uh, girls and one in five boys by the age of 18. And it occurs in every socioeconomic, educational levels, ethnic and cultural lines, in all religions, yes, even the religious. It's estimated that between 15,000 to 50,000 women and children are sold into sex slavery in the United States every year. And that's the most conservative number I found on, on those studies this week. A columnist for AL.com, he at one time wrote for the Birmingham News, he wrote a book called Shaking the Gates of Hell. And he spoke about his father, who was a, a, um, a United Methodist preacher in Birmingham during the Civil Rights Movement in the 60s. And he said nothing about the oppression of black people during the Civil Rights Movement. Preachers who did, these white preachers, then they could be banished, fired, even worse. And he was warned, his dad was warned that, you know, you remain silent, you be careful what you say for the protection of your own family. And that's exactly what, what he did. And he wasn't certainly the only preacher. And believe me, it wasn't just someone from the United Methodist Church. It was happening in churches of Christ as well. When I was in college, one of my professors told us about Marshall Keeble. Some of you know who this is. Marshall Keeble was a famous uh, black Church of Christ minister way back in the day. And when he walked into church buildings among white people, he always made sure that he got in the back because he said he knew his place. Where were elders and ministers standing up? for the oppressed. Why were they not standing up for equity? Micah knew that his message was not going to be very popular. And that's exactly why he says in chapter 3 and verse 8, but as for me, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. We need Spirit-filled leaders in the church. We need spirit-filled Christians in the kingdom of God, those who are loyal to King Jesus and the kingdom of God more than they are some political party or more than they are their reputation among the society's elites. They stand up for those who are oppressed. Christians who stand up for the oppressed that have no voice in the world, and it could be the unborn, it could be children, it could be people with disabilities or the poor or the immigrant. All of those, we fall in those categories. An international power shift had begun. Assyria was becoming one of the most evil, bloodthirsty, manipulative, arrogant empires in the ancient world. Four Assyrian kings came down in military com campaigns into the northern kingdom. They made the northern kingdom into an Assyrian province. And, and, and all of this happened during the time of Micah. In 701, they, they came down into the southern kingdom. They took 46 Judean towns. They, they took Jerusalem and King Hezekiah. Hey, he was one of the good kings. He made a, a, an ally with Egypt and Babylon, which Micah 
and Isaiah both called on him to repent for doing so. God did come in and he miraculously saved Jerusalem. If you were to read Isaiah chapter 37, verses 36 and 37, but they never learned their lesson. And so both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdoms would crumble. But it was also necessary for a new birth, a new beginning. Each section of Micah's prophecy, it ends with, with hope and restoration. God is compared to a shepherd in chapter 2, 12 and 13, who's coming to regather his flock, the remnant, to become their king once again. You see, God's last word is not going to be punishment and exile. God's last word is going to be salvation, at least for some. So we have this dueling theme throughout the book of Micah, judgment and hope. God had to judge the people of Israel to judge their evil in order to give them, as well as all the nations of the earth, hope. You see, there's a difference between God's children being disciplined by God and God's enemies being judged by Him. The Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 32, he says, We are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So it brings up a good question. Does God punish His people today in our world? I think the answer to that is yes. Well, how does He do it? Well, that one's a little bit harder to answer. Because we don't always know when it's the discipline of God. Because there is evil in the world. There, we do live in a fallen world. Sometimes it may be years before we can look back and we can see what God was really trying to do. We often ask, though, why would God allow bad things to happen in the world? And Micah provides some of that answer. It's needed in order for restoration and hope. You may have gone to church your whole life, for example. But yet, you rarely give thought to God. Those leaders of Israel back in the day, Micah says that they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. That's in chapter 3 and verse 11. They were convinced that God was on their side, that He was approving. At least He was tolerating their sinfulness and their wickedness and their treatment of other people. And we have to ask ourselves, are we guilty of the same thing? Do we go around telling people, you know, we're Christians. Hey, we go to church. But yet we do not live a life that's in accordance with Jesus. Are we people who are filled with greed and materialism? Are we vulgar? Do we treat people who are under us as inferior? Some Christians are offended that the world wants to take away our Christian rights, and yet the only time they ever pick up their Bibles is when they go to church once a week, if they even do that. Or the only time that they pray is when something bad is going on in their life or, or maybe as a quick ritual before they eat. 
They give 10%. Hey, give 10%. But yet they do nothing to offer help to others. No amount of time into others. It's exactly what Jesus condemned the scribes and Pharisees of in Matthew chapter 23 and in verse 23. He says, oh, you make sure that you give a tithe for all of these small little details. He says, but you've forgotten the most important things, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Maybe the better question is, would God allow us to be financially ruined in order to break us of materialism? Would he cause our church right here to die? But in order to try to get us out of a ritualistic devotion, would he bring our nation down? Because we have trusted more in government and their leaders than we have the King of Kings and the Kingdom of God. Would he allow us to get a disease in order to just shake the foundations of our own faith so that we would give up trying to, to be in charge ourselves, entrusting in ourselves. And you say, that just sounds awful, doesn't it? Yet the anger of God will not put an end to his mercy and his love for us. Go to the very last chapter of Micah, Micah chapter 7. And I want to read just the last three verses after this great, this great Hebrew poetry of the prophet. He says, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his, his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. That's Hesed, if you're familiar with it. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast out all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have shown to our fathers from the days of old. Salvation depends on the very goodness of God, but salvation may also come from a purifying fire painful purification that is needed for us to be back on track where we need to be. God's punishing anger is temporary, but its ultimate purpose is not about destroying us. It's about saving and redeeming us. It's a call to repentance. We said Micah's name in the very beginning. In fact, we see it in chapter 1, verse 1. His name means, who is like Yahweh? And here he comes to the very end of his book. And in verse 18, he asks, who is a God like you? This is the book's overall message. We think that this book is about pondering ourselves, and it is to some extent. But the Bible is about understanding God, who He is, how He acts, His goodness, the fact that He is incomparable in chapter 4 and verse 13 as the Lord of the whole earth. So what does God want from us, you know? Well, chapter 6 and verse 8, Micah says, has, He has told you, O man, what is good. Okay, here's what He wants. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness or mercy 
and to walk humbly with your God. The people had become so content going through religious motions that they were not practicing any kind of genuine spiritual devotion. True religion, it comes from a heart that is focused on God that results in godly living. For the prophets, true justice was for the poor and the widow, the orphan, and the immigrant. It's a community where they don't have to worry about their own safety, where people will take advantage of them. This verse comes at the pinnacle of Micah accusing these leaders of their sinfulness towards the oppressed. It's interesting that he also joins justice with mercy and humility, isn't it? Because when we talk about justice, there really is two modes of justice. One is decided in a very public way. Okay, so if someone, justice, someone steals from someone, then there needs to be justice. It's been made crooked. So you take them to court, and there they are told they must repay what they had stolen, maybe do community service, maybe be put in jail, but it's all about making straight what had been made crooked. But a court is about justice, it's not about mercy, it's about right and wrong. That's the other mode to this, which is justice with mercy. And in this situation, it's where you see a group of people who are marginalized and you provide rules to protect them. You're not actually seeking a strict justice as much as you're trying to do mercy towards these people. And nine out of ten times when the word justice is used in Scripture, it is used in this way. It's about creating a society where the most vulnerable and disadvantaged in the community are protected. That's mercy. But then he also mixes it with humility. In other words, it's about making other people more important than me. And it's taking their problems and making them my problems. This goes back to what we had said, you know, the preacher during the Civil Rights Movement. He was a white preacher. It wasn't his problem. But out of humility and justice and mercy, he should have made it his problem. Today, you find situations where people are being marginalized and they need this justice, mercy, and humility from God's people. It may be a minority. It may be a senior citizen or a handicap or poor or someone who is intellectually below the average person. And justice, folks, when we talk about it, it's not a social trend. We often think, well, it's, it's, it's about protesting. Listen, it's much more than that. It's about this relentless pursuit of righteousness that just flows out of every aspect of our lives. It's not a picket sign. It's not a social media campaign. It's a life where our words and actions align with the heart of the God of justice. If you read through the poetry of the Psalms, you find the word justice many times. The thing is, most of the time, it's not talking about humanity. It's talking about God. 
good example is in Psalm 146, verse 7, he speaks of God and he says, who executes justice for the oppressed. And then he goes on and tells us how, uh, what it means for Yahweh to seek justice for the oppressed. They help feed the poor. He feeds the poor. He sets the prisoners free. He opens the eyes of the blind. He lifts up those who have been bowed down. He loves the righteous. He watches over the foreigner. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. But the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. God's character was brought into full display into the life of Jesus. He is the one who stood up for the oppressed. He fed the hungry. He took care of the sick. He loved the unloved lovable. He forgave sins and he pronounced judgment upon the wicked. And here's what's really interesting about this book of Micah. Micah prophesied his coming. Look at chapter 5 beginning in verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is the ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is of old from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until that time. When she who is in labor has given birth, then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall ascend and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. It was from Bethlehem that the Messianic king would come, and he would restore his people Israel. And it's from that it would bring the blessing to all the nations of the earth, because they then will finally take it to the nations. That's us. We are, we are absolutely can give testimony to that fact. Jesus is bringing one day a universal peace that the United Nations can only dream about. If you look back in chapter 4, he says, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the heights of the mountain, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and the people shall flow to it, and many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples and decide disputes among the nations far away. Listen to this. And for they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts is spoken. For all the people walk, each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of Yahweh our God forever and ever. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted and the lame I will make the remnant and those who are cast off a strong nation and the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth forevermore. Folks, the prophecies of old, they, they are not dead literature. It's not some kind of 
just a historical event. They are living and they are timeless challenges for Christians today to look and listen. We're supposed to go to this book and ask ourselves some serious questions about justice and injustice. We're to ask ourselves, are, are we the people who stand up for the oppressed? Are we the people who are oppressing them? Where does injustice dwell in my own life? Do I even listen to the oppressed or do I just wave them off as that's not my problem or maybe even that you don't even believe them? Do we need to repent? That's the question. Do you need to repent? We're meant to understand that God is the real Lord of history. Who is like Yahweh? We are so concerned about the superpowers of our world, whether, you know, is it still the United States? Is it China? And yet, how can we go to the book of Micah and we don't understand that superpowers in the world, they are nothing but puppets in the hands of the Almighty Creator? It's in Him we trust. It's in Him we trust. Let us pray. Father, we come to you this day and we thank you for your goodness, for your mercy and your love to us. Father, forgive us in those times that we have not stood up for the oppressed. Father, we, we pray for those times when we took advantage of those who were, who were in an inferior position than we were. Father, forgive us for our materialism. Forgive us of the things that we do that, that is absolutely outside of your very character. Father, we pray for the oppressed. We pray for those who are marginalized in our world. And may we make a difference on your behalf. If we haven't so far, then maybe, Father, from this day forth, that we make this our goal, our mission, to do the very same. But, Father, we just pray for your coming and we pray for your mercy. We pray for the day that we will be in peace. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.